what we were just discussing right before Neil hit record was this is my third time reading this book. I think I've read it every other year for the last, but this would be year five then. What always stands out to me is it's so concise. It's like each chapter in like six pages, I feel like I'm absorbing like 60 pages worth of context. And each time that I've read it, something different has stood out. I've been formulating this uh, hypothesis over the last month or two, which is that when it comes to the realm of idea books, which this definitely is, even a great author only has a couple of them in them. And the longer they wait to create them, the better they probably are. So I think that this idea of the like career idea author probably it's like very hard just because mm-hmm. you it's hard to have like a super deep grasp on something after a couple of years of you know skimming around and then jumping to the next thing and the next thing you can you can have a long prodigious nonfiction career if you're doing history or journalism or things like that but these kinds of books where it's like here's everything I've learned about this subject in as concise of a thing as possible is like yeah. this is the ultimate manifestation of that. Yeah. I mean, because it, it was the yeah. it was the last book they wrote, right? Mm-hmm. Or one of the very last. Yep. They were in their eighties when they wrote it. I want to say. So before this, they had written the story of philosophy, the pleasures of philosophy, and then I something in the neighborhood of a dozen books for the story of civilization. Yeah. And those combined, and- I think, to something in the neighborhood of like eight thousand pages wow. of history. Yeah, well, well over a million words of history writing. <laughs> and this is I mean, a 100-page summary of a million words of history. Yeah, and the title yeah. is very descriptive as well, The Lessons of History. It's just very plain and, and descriptive. Nat, to your point on idea authors, yeah, if you think about the authors who do that, like who have a career of ideas, uh, of idea books, it's actually usually just the same idea but just kind of done in many yeah, ways. It's the same idea yeah, over and even over Even Taleb, again. right? It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's written, you know, four or five, I guess five books, but they all touch the same topic from a different lens, essentially, or a different angle. And it's not like he has yeah. five separate idea books that are all amazing. It's like he has one central idea that he's just looked at from a variety of angles. And they're not concise. Totally. That's the other thing. Like yeah. this... This book is like, <laughs> this book is the ultimate, like, I don't know, like power per word or like impact per word book that yeah. I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think like, yeah. you know, if, if I had to pick another book in this category, it, it's not, it's not at this level. Cause I don't think any book is quite at this level, but Morgan Housel's psychology mm. of money is mm. another one that I think hits this mark extremely well. In the sense that Morgan was writing about finance and psychology online for like 12 or 15 years. And that book is not long. You know, it's short and you can get through it pretty quickly, but it's so dense and so concise. And that's one of those situations where I, part of me sincerely hopes he never writes another like money (laughs) book because it it, it would almost like, like he would, <laughs> I don't, I don't, obviously if he wants to, he should. Right. But it, it's that tough thing where like, it's so good and it distilled so much knowledge over so long that it's just so hard to follow that up. Right. I don't like James Clear has talked about this a bunch with atomic habits where he's kind of like, okay, I spent 15 years thinking about this before I wrote this. Like what, what do I do now? <laughs> no, that's a, 
That's a great point. And I think authors sometimes like really stumble. I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of one off the top of my head, but like, you know, I think there are for sure we've seen people write one great book and then they feel like they have to write. And maybe this happens more often in fiction, but you, I definitely have, feel like I've seen it in nonfiction as well. I think that's actually one of the big differences between fiction and nonfiction is that fiction authors like more often they'll kind of like get better over time. You know, the the storytelling and stuff will get better and better. Whereas some of the nonfiction stuff, yeah, they have one of those earlier books that really nails their idea. And then they kind of get stuck on that idea and keep rehashing it in future books. It's I'm trying to think of an example. You know, Taleb is an interesting one because a lot of the ideas in Anti-Fragile were there in Fooled by Randomness. But I think Anti-Fragile was the best. Yeah. And I I, I actually agree. And I think Fooled by Randomness was the... It's like more of the technical foundations, I would say. Black Swan is more like the descriptive uh, version of of this. And then Mm Anti-Fragile is the most prescriptive. Like it's telling you how to use this to your advantage. Mm. And then Skin skin in the Game is... Skin in the game was kind yeah, of derivative. Like, yeah, skin in the game. I I enjoyed it, but it was also like, and and maybe if that was someone's first introduction to Taleb, it's like not a bad place to start because it makes a lot of sense. But if you had already read his other three books, there isn't a ton of new stuff. Um, and also, he had written blog posts before the book came out that basically were the whole book. So there wasn't True. you know a ton of new content in there. But he hasn't tried to venture into new ideas. I I guess what I was thinking more of was, are there authors who like, I I guess like even in Taleb's case, he spent, I don't know how many uh, years as a trader and kind of like living these ideas before he wrote the book. So he's probably spent, I don't know, a decade or two living these ideas before writing about it. And if he pivoted to some new topic now, like I don't even know what topic he would do just like being mean to people on Twitter or something. (laughs) You know, he hasn't had that same like pent up experience and like life, you know, life events that have kind of given him all this material to work with. And I think nonfiction, it's harder than fiction for that because fiction, you're inventing a world. Yeah. Right. And, and nonfiction, you're like talking about something that happened in real life and you're accumulating experiences that feed into that. So you can only do that at a kind of standard rate. You know, you can't, Yeah. If you think about any influential idea writer, it's never more than one or two books that you really point to, right? Yeah. Sorry, what were you going to say? There's a, risk in, there's a risk in your career as like what stage in your career you write the big synthesis of your ideas. Like for yeah. the Durants here, this is what you said they were in their 80s and they had done the million words of highly detailed zoomed in writing first, right? I guess right. Morgan... Uh, did that with psychology of money, right? It's like not late in his career, but it was after a lot of the legwork. Totally. Whereas as far as I know, like Taleb went straight to it. Taleb was like, I, I got one idea. And <laughs> it's like the opposite of concise. The books are just rambles. Uh, they're highly entertaining rambles if you're into that kind of yeah. writing. But like if the Durants wrote the Taleb books, the four books would be maybe an essay with four sections. Yeah. Yeah. Although have you guys read anything That's else point. Um, by the Durants? I've read the I've first my, of Story of Civilization. Yeah, I have my Story of Civilization <laughs> tomes back there. I've read the, uh, the Story of Philosophy, which it's dense, but I loved it because the the thing that I really love about it is the, the name 
isn't just like a clever, oh, the story of philosophy. The name is very like philosophy was the transition of ideas from one person to the next person to the next person to the next person. And the best way to think about the history of philosophy is to think about each of these people influencing and then like getting angry at and reacting to each other uh, throughout time. And yeah. it was such a better way to get a high level overview of philosophy than just like disparate ideas kind of thrown at the wall. I think I read it like 10 years ago, though. I want to reread it because that that way of telling the story was so good. And it's like Durant's first book. He's 26 wow. when he writes it or something. Yeah. It's really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool that you mentioned that, though, because in this book, at the end of his life, one of the first chapters, I think, in biology and history, he basically says human nature has remained the same and has only evolved yeah. through the combat of ideas, which is the same idea you just mentioned he wrote at 26. I was going to say, was the language in that book as beautiful as this one? Because like the language in this book is just like the way he writes or they write these sentences in this book. And it, it's impo- like I I can't even describe it. I think somebody like if you're curious about this, just pick up the book and read it. it won't take you very long. It's a short book. It's just beautiful. It makes me feel so inferior as a writer sometimes too. like when I read authors like this, I'm just like, yeah. wow, how do- how, like they're getting po- points across so concisely, but cramming so much information yeah. in there without seeming like they're just cramming information in there. Like the impact per word is just. This was crazy. sort of what I was about to. Yeah, the. I, whenever that frustrates me too, I really like reading the first <laughs> book by an author. Like mm-hmm. I never, I try to not read their best book first because that's always going yep. to be frustrating. <laughs> It's, it's like if you go back and read their first book, you can get a lot more of the okay, you got way better at this later, right? Like nobody, nobody starts it's a out, craft, yeah, uh, yeah. at the top, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think lessons of history, it definitely was not as like or lessons of or the story of philosophy doesn't pull you through as easily and beautifully as lessons of history does. It's a little more of a slog. It's a little yep. more textbooky. It's still very good, but yeah, they, they got a lot better after 60 years of writing basically. One counterpoint to what we've been saying for the last five minutes is go to Asher Bach, which is like very Ooh. early in his career. <clears throat> and then all the stuff he did after, but, but maybe he just captured a moment in time or and he never he never uh, no, topped it. I don't think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah, interesting yeah. how that was like the beginning of his career. Yeah, that's a good what, point. Is what you guys liked about Geb his the quality of his writing and it declined from there, or is it just the idea was so powerful that nothing else quite lived up to that? Well, Adil has a good point because a lot of it is the quality and interplay yeah. of ideas, which he was probably excited about because he was working on the forefront of computer science at the time. And it probably would have just been hard to find anything as exciting as the early ideas of computer science later in life. Right. Maybe, maybe this is the distinction is that if you're doing a summary on a topic that you can continue to grow an expertise in over time, it's better to do it later but when you're capturing something that you're excited about or 
you know, have some current like expertise on, it's better to do it earlier, right? Like the other example I think of kind of often is uh, David Allen, the guy who wrote mm. Getting Things Done, mm. because he wrote that book relatively late, I think, in his career as a productivity guy and kind of as the first productivity guy. And he never really wrote any other big book about productivity, right? I think that's right. I think that was basically it. I don't want to fact check myself here. Just because I haven't heard of any others doesn't mean that there aren't any others. But I think that was basically it. Yeah. So, you know, he kind of like really, really mastered productivity, wrote the book, and then was like, okay, cool. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) right versus you know and i was guilty of this right being like 21 and writing a million articles about productivity advice despite having a very shallow understanding of it right so i i'm not saying you shouldn't do that because it's a good way to learn but as a consumer of information if you can find those resources from people later on in their careers they're often going to be better what's the counter example to this like who who published a book and then pivoted really hard and was like, never mind. <laughs> like, <laughs> Go do something else or into a completely different topic. Or just because a lot of this is the you publish something early and then yeah. you can't beat the idea again. But there's also you. Here's one example of it, actually. The guy who wrote Hooked. Didn't he come back later and he wrote the counter argument to Hooked? He was like, here's how to free yourself from addicting apps. Oh, yeah. Oh, near. Uh, you're right. Near yeah. Yeah. He so I know have, he yeah. wrote. Um, yeah. Then. Okay. Yeah. He wrote. Sorry. Yep. I'm just pulling it up. Hooked how to build habit forming products in 2014. And then five years later, indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> create yep. the problem and solve it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a firefighter with an arson problem. <laughs> well, I respect yeah. the turnaround, right? Like it's like, no, hey, I, I, I was wrong. I think that's great. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going through all of my book notes and trying to think and trying to see if there's anyone, I mean, there, there are versions of this, like Robert green is kind of an interesting one where he's talked about very different topics, but through a similar lens. Right. So, mm. you know, like seduction is very different from, well, maybe it's not that different from war or from power. I guess those are all kind of similar and then like mastery, but they're, they're all told in the similar style of using history as a guide. And so that is kind of an interesting example. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just scrolling through my book list. It's hard. It's really, I think, hard for somebody to have multiple great ideas worth turning into, you know, highly impactful nonfiction idea books. Yeah. Do the Robert Green books live up to the hype? I haven't read any of them. Yeah. Some of them. Okay. I I mean, pa- power is very good, like objectively. People get overly excited about it, I think, but it, it's a very mm-hmm. good book. I really liked Seduction. I think Mastery is my favorite of his. 50th Law is also really good. Maybe because it's (laughs) short. (laughs) And the stories from 50 Cent's Life are really good. It's not dense the way the other ones are. Yeah, it's not as dense as the other ones. The most readable one is 50th Law. Yeah, and then Mastery is pretty readable too. I think uh, War, Seduction, Mm. and Power are the least readable, but they're also the... the, They have a ton of content in those three. Got it. Got it. 
People always talk about Lindy rule, but I'd actually be curious to flip, not flip, to filter books by the age of the author when they <laughs> wrote the book mm, and see an what idea. results yeah. do that yield. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it is really, especially for idea nonfiction, it's very rare that you get one from a very young person that's like truly life-changing. I mean, go yeah. to Lusherbach is definitely the the big counter example to that. Yeah. Although to be fair, we haven't read his later stuff and it could be like, sometimes what gets popular is also cause it's the first or it captured. It's like published at the exact right time that hits the public imagination right. or, you know, like I would imagine if you published an AI book in like, I don't know the fifties, nobody cares. And if you publish it in, yeah. you know, 2020s there's been a million of them so no you know it's hard to break through that noise maybe he like just hit it right when you know it entered the public consciousness it was a good book at the right time kind of thing too there's there's a lot of that yeah uh probably with publishing there's this other interesting challenge with writing where and this doesn't apply as much to almost anything else but basically every new book that gets published, it gets harder and harder for that book to succeed because mm. the catalog of other things you could read is really like only increasing. So on a per author level too, if you think about it, like the author is always competing with their earlier works as well. And even when a later book does well, people will probably think like, Oh, I should go read that earlier one first. Maybe. Right. Like you can kind of see how people would kind of like filter down to the first book and then go back up. And so whatever book like launched their career, it's probably harder and harder and harder for them to compete against it as their career goes on and they get more popular because as they get more popular, that first book also and gets launch their career doesn't mean right. the first book, I think. Like, for example, I think it's like, no, it's almost you can think about this in like an SEO way. Like, what's the first one that would show up? Like if you search going back to Taleb, yeah. it's Black Swan is what everyone knows him mm -hmm. for. And I always tell people, don't don't read Black Swan first. Like, uh, and honestly, if you're going to read one, just read Anti-Fragile. He had three books just before that, uh, right? Fooled by Randomness. I think. And, and then oh, two like right. mathy trading yes, books, you're right. I think. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, what is the first thing that would show up? Like for Robert Greene, right? It's 48 Laws of Power. But that was that his first one? Maybe it was. But I don't know if it's like... Yeah, but it, it, was, it like yeah. doesn't have to be... Some people hit it out That's of the park true. on the first I mean, time. <laughs> Listen, Robert Greene is a terrible example. It chronological, though, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's like, it's like wh whatever yeah, becomes yeah. like the book for that person is what, what you're competing with. Like for Taleb to now write another book would have to outcompete, you know, the other ones he's written. Yeah. Do you guys know who John Grisham is? He's the yeah. guy who wrote The yeah. Firm. Yeah. I, I'm reading his first book right now, A Time to Kill. And... He has a foreword in the beginning that's really interesting because he like he wrote A Time to Kill while working as a lawyer, you know, had no writing connections, whatever, and then found an agent, you know, got rejected a ton, kind of that classic story, got rejected by like 12 agents and 15 publishers, whatever, finally found somebody who would take it. That guy went out to start selling it. Somebody finally picked up the book. They did a 5,000 copy print run and then never printed more copies until the firm came out and the firm did wow. so insanely well that it made people want to go back and read a time to kill. And then that's what made a time to kill a bestseller. 
was like after the later book came out. And then A Time to Kill got turned into a movie and all of this stuff. But it was basically like a total failure at first when Mm -hmm. there wasn't that like later thing to pick it up, uh, which is kind of cool. Because one thing I another thing I learned in my research is that John Grisham and like only one other author hold a tie for the record for most books in an initial print run of 2 million copies. (laughs) One of his later books when it came out, they pre-printed 2 million copies. (laughs) That's absurd. What do you think the advance on that is? I mean, you're on 2 million copies. You're probably making four to $6 million. So is he getting like a $10 million advance for that book? That's something like that. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. People who read Grisham really read Grisham. Like my mom has, I think, if not every single one of his books, she does like a whole row at our little library at home. That's all just it, John Grisham books. A Time to Kill is good. It It's funny because in the in the intro that he wrote 10 or 15 years later, he's like, oh, it kind of rambles at times. And, you know, it's definitely not my best work, but I still like it. You know, it's fun. Uh, and like, maybe there's a little bit of that, but it, 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 it really like gallops along. Mm. It's fun. And they make the. I mean, it's not fun. It's really fucking dark, but oh, <laughs> it's it's a good story. There's a movie of it, isn't there? Well, yeah, that's the other thing Cruise. with his books, probably, and for the advance, maybe not for the first one, but like later on, you know, the advance also would be movie. Oh, Matthew McConaughey as well, probably. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Wow. Although Sandra I learned Bullock, Sam Jackson, Matthew McConaughey, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Wow. Damn. And within seven years, so he must have published The Firm in that interim period so that A Time to Kill got back on the radar, got picked up to be a film, turned into a script, filmed and released within seven years. It's pretty prolific. Good for him. He, Yeah, he said that when his agent started selling A Time to Kill, his agent told him to just start writing the next book. (laughs) So he he was, I think he like had almost finished The Firm by the time A Time to Kill got picked up. Um. Which is an wow. interesting difference between fiction and nonfiction book deals. Because for fiction book deals, you have to have the whole manuscript yeah. done usually, which is crazy. It explains why it's such a hard industry to break into. Like you have to find the time to write a whole fucking book before you know if anyone's yeah. going to pay for it. And most of the time, they're not. <laughs> Nat, to expand on your $2 million on the first print, the other authors, the only other authors to have done that are Makes J.K. Sense. Rowling and Tom Clancy. Oh, and Rishim has written books that sold a total of 300 million copies. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, he's probably, I mean, I guess trade paperbacks, you don't make that much. You might make 75 cents or a dollar, but so he's probably made minimum $300 million in book sales. Probably closer to four or 500. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. And and the book we're covering today is the lessons of writing history. (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh yeah, that's what we're doing today. <laughs> no, no, no. That was I, we were we were on yeah, topic no, for a little bit. Was, this, that was a good. That was a good tangent. It's been a while since we had a good, a good tangent. tangent. I don't think we had any tangents in the last episode, <laughs> which is a little disappointing for for everyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think it's an important point though because I think I didn't actually know the history that, like of this book and of the Durants before reading. Yeah. I, this is my yeah. first book that I'm reading. By them and i've it's one of those things where you see them talked about so much that people recommend it so much they 
I, I don't know if you guys have this problem. This is, might just be a me thing. I sometimes like reflexively like turn away from books like that. I'm like, ah, everyone's recommending it. It probably sucks. Yeah. yeah. Like, Dude, that was Especially why I for, didn't pick up Three same. Body for so long. Now yeah. I'm reading it because you guys have. Forced I'm reading me it because Nat forced me to do it, and now so I'm sad. Like, I'm almost <laughs> done. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> All right. I mean, to your, to your point, Neil. Like, especially for nonfiction, I have that reaction pretty often, where it's like, I don't know. It, I don't. I don't want to be like too critical of books. You know, everybody's at like different points of their reading journey, and after a certain point, a lot of nonfiction just doesn't hit for you anymore because yeah. you've you've heard all the ideas before. It's a lot of repackaging. You're you're kind of tired of it, and you know you have to get there by reading a lot of the like broadly coined self help, self improvement, whatever idea books. Uh, and so, yeah, when one is really popular, you're kind of like, eh, I'm probably just I'm, I'm not going to get out of it what other people are getting out of it. So I think that reaction yeah. is kind of natural. I definitely feel that way. And, and and to your point with fiction, when I start hearing that about a fiction book, I assume it's like super popcorn-y beach <laughs> About read, vampires right? or something. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was sort of my... Or it'd be easy to assume that about uh, Three Body Problem too, right? It's like, eh, okay, if this many people like it, like I'm a lot smarter. Than <laughs> yeah, it all comes down to our egos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm yeah, special. Exactly. <laughs> I don't like things. Most well, and I think the, I think the other, other thing about this book is, um, is like, and Nat, you and I have talked about this before. I, like, I think over time, I've gotten less into reading about history because it kind of goes back to that problem of, like if the news is fake, then imagine history. And so like I used to read a lot of history maybe eight, nine years ago. And I think over the years, I've just kind of like, you know, I sometimes will read it, but like not not super into reading history anymore. So that's another thing with this book that I was like, ah, oh, lessons of history. It's probably another one of those. But this book isn't really a history book. It's like it it, it is what it says. Yeah. It's lessons of history. Yeah. It's basically a distillation of concepts that the Durants have learned by studying history. So it's not really about like, oh, in 1860, like this happened. And like on May 30th, 1861, like this happened. You know, it's it's more, it's it's actually not at all about that. It's all about the concepts that they're distilling yeah. over time. They also the- are very lucid about it. Like they, there's a quote that I like <clears throat> at the beginning of the book, which is most of history is guessing. And the rest mm. is prejudice. So you're already like, okay, I trust these guys because they have yeah. the same <laughs> on it that I do. And everything that they infer, like all the concepts that you're talking about, Neil, it's all stuff you can't really debate. It's like, oh, this, like the main theme of the book is that there's a pendulum and things rise and they fall. And most ideas are not necessarily novel because they've existed before. It's just the pendulum swinging back. And it's true across a variety of domains. And you can infer that even if you disagree on why the pendulum swung back. You know that it did. It's just like right. you can just look minus prejudice and infer that. Yeah, there. it's very like cyclical view of history, kind of fourth turning-ish, as opposed to like linear yeah. view of history. Yeah. Though, what, so the... I guess maybe we, we zoom out to a little bit of context for folks, but I, I would love to discuss the last chapter on is progress mm. real progress. Uh, yeah. So the, the reason that they even pose this question is because history is this pendulum that goes back and forth. So is it when we feel like the pendulum is swinging, 
are we making progress? Is it a reversion or is it neither? Because progress or reversion would be a matter of perspective if you're on the pendulum. I have a great quotation from that chapter to set the stage a little bit. Uh, Since we have admitted no substantial change in man's nature during historic times, all technological advances will have to be written off as merely new means of achieving old ends. The acquisition of goods, the pursuit of one sex by the other or by the same, the overcoming of competition, the fighting of wars. It's like it's it's a very interesting way of thinking about progress, not as scientific progress in the where's my flying car sense, but as progress as a species. And their argument is basically that the species hasn't made that much progress, you know, as it'd be, you'd have to pick your your yardstick pretty carefully here because a lot of yardsticks that you pick it's like well obviously there's been progress right like there's way fewer child deaths you know way fewer people in poverty right all of those things are certainly better but we're still basically the same under the hood is probably what Mm -hmm. they're getting at yeah uh like the technology everything that is derivative of technology has progressed and everything else is on a pendulum seems to be their conclusion. I don't know if I yeah. completely agree, but I think that's sort of where they land. I feel like you asked me on different days, I would give a different answer to this question, but it's like sometimes, yeah, it feels like, okay, yeah, look at all the progress we have made as a species and, you know, childbirth's a great one. Like people aren't starving in nearly the numbers they were even 50 years ago. Even just from like a basic communication standpoint, you can talk to anyone in the world basically for free. You know, these are, they're all miracles. You can fly across an ocean for relatively cheap and, you know, kind of explore the world in a way that, you know, pre-airplane, you would be, you know, only able to do that if you were in like the Navy or something. So it's like there are on many axes, like a ton of progress. But then if you look at it from the other standpoint, you could also say like, okay, we've solved some problems and then created new ones through those solutions potentially. And people are more isolated and like families are, you know, less together and more psychological problems. And like, yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't know. So you asked me on different days, I feel like I'd give a different answer to that. But I, I generally yeah. agree with a, with what Adil just said around anything on the technology axes has improved. And then everything else is probably somewhat cultural and cyclical Um, because they bring up a lot of points in this book about essentially like the pendulum between like liberalization and conservatism and how that kind of swings back and forth. And that's not necessarily like a linear thing. That's more, much more cyclical. It seems like. Yeah. They have another quotation here that I think highlights a little bit more of what they're getting at with this, where they say, and this, the, the, kind of the contrast between scientific progress and progress as humans where they say our capacity for fretting is endless. And no matter how many difficulties we surmount, how many ideals we realize we shall always find an excuse for being magnificently miserable. There is a stealthy pleasure in rejecting mankind or the universe as unworthy of our approval. It's this very Hmm. kind of like, is this, Buddhism or Hinduism? I think it's more Buddhism. Life is suffering idea, right? Like our default state is kind of always being this like something is wrong. And no matter how great we make our lives, we will always find 
some new thing to be unhappy about. Which is absolutely right? true. I, I think, think this is like, like a- if you see people who have little money or a ton of money or a medium amount of money, like everyone always has some problems, no matter what, like you, you'll yeah. find a problem. And that problem might be like, I, I anecdotally, right? Like there's someone I know who in the last few years, like their company became very successful and they no longer work at their company and they make like double digit millions a year from their company. So they have no money worries whatsoever. And the dude is depressed because he doesn't know what to do with his time. And he's just like, he's investing and he's like doing all this stuff. Now he's thinking about starting a new company because he's like, just has that itch again. It's like, you know, those the year that he kind of wasn't doing much, he was like playing golf and traveling and stuff. It like probably got old really quickly. And then that created this this void. Uh, And it's just a, you know, it's like one of those things like no matter somebody who's poor might look at that person and be like, wow, what do you have to worry about? Like your life is set. But mm-hmm. the human brain just doesn't work like that. I don't I don't think it's possible to to yeah. just be like, oh, I'm it's bliss all the time and nothing is wrong. Even if yeah. objectively that might be true. That is a there is like a, a sh- slot in the mind for discontent and it's either filled with something very real or it's filled with something conjured but it's like always filled with something and maybe like the size of the slot or the number of those slots is like depending on the nature of the individual because you do see that vary right like you'll have folks who are in terrible conditions exactly very optimistic yeah yeah so this book was published in 1968 which kind of blew my mind because there are so many things in there that I would have been like, oh, it must have at least been published right before he died in 81, right? Yeah. Uh, but the one that stood out to me from the progress chapter that's related to what we were just discussing is, I'll just read the quote, we have uh, multiplied a hundred times our ability to learn and report the events of the day and the planet. But at times we envy our ancestors whose peace was only gently disturbed by the news of their village. A, it's just an incredible quote. It's also 40 years before Twitter, and I can hardly... I <laughs> 60. When, when they wrote this, there like were like five news channels. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about the progress bit and like this, uh, I think this just speaks to like just how, how well they've extracted and like zoomed out uh, of history. If you imagine like the turnings of the century, they're basically writing this at the end of a high. Right, you have the crisis, then you have the high, and then in 1968 yeah. they're publishing this, and they're so zoomed out. It's like, yeah, like we're not really concerned about the high. Things are going to go back to the way they were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they should have been investors. They would have cleaned yeah. up. <laughs> um, no, there, there's another uh, quote about the a quotation about the cycles, which was interesting. Which is more political, but it's overthrow a despised regime and then become it and repeat. I love that because you see yeah. that so often, right? Like yeah. revolution to throw, yeah. overthrow someone and then you become the dictator that you, you know, or the, the, the authoritarian regime that you had yep. th- overthrown. I'm reading uh, Kissinger's on China right now. And I just finished a section on Mao and they talk about this extensively there that like Mao was struggling with the idea that he was now the regime, the revolution had succeeded. Mm. And so he had this idea of like continuous revolution. He's like, we can never become the thing we were replacing. We have to be in a continuous state of revolution. 
And that's basically what led to millions of people dying in, you know, in China with the Cultural Revolution and so on. But uh, it's a very, you know, very lucid historical uh, observation. I didn't expect that to be the reason why there was such instability in China at the time. Yep. Yeah. And then the the other thing about like pendulums that we've kind of been talking to, and I started alluding to earlier, I, I found the quotation, which I'll just read. The tension between the radical and the conservative is necessary and good. Of 100 radical ideas, 99 will be terrible, but the one that is good will push humanity forward. And the conservative will ensure that the traditions, stability that created the world will not be lost. Like, Read the sentence after or the paragraph after. It's like the foundation. I'm not on the page. Uh, I'm actually looking at your notes, so I don't know what page that's on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so the conservative who resists change is as valuable as the radical who proposes it, perhaps much more valuable as roots are more vital than grafts. Just so interesting, like the, the analogy they draw of like a graft can take and can be pretty amazing. Uh, but you need the roots. Yeah, and it's yeah. like a symbiotic relationship, not a um even though it might feel adversarial in the in the moment, it's like from a zoomed out view, which is I think what's really nice about what they do yeah. is like they're not uh they're not looking at like history or or society through a first person lens. They're kind of like zoomed out as if you were observing the world, you know, from another planet. Just being like, these are the dynamics of the system yeah. <laughs> and how it works. I yeah. People really undervalue the existence of healthy tension. It's like you want some amount of debate and you want that amount of disagreement. And that is is good because you'll find the line of best fit through it. But to get there, you need that healthy amount of tension, even though it is by definition tense. Like, I think that I think leaning into that in the healthy amounts is actually very good. And we've talked about this a little bit before where it's like, when Congress is in gridlock, that's actually a feature. It's like we, right. we clearly we don't have the consensus to break gridlock, and people always talk about it as like, well, it's you know, gridlock is bad. Da, da, da. Yeah, it's probably not a bad thing necessarily, and it's a good thing. Uh, like it, this applies to companies as well too, because it's like you know you might have some subgroup within the company that always wants to go chase like the new shiny thing, but if you go do that, you're gonna be wasting yeah. tons of time and money on <clears throat> you know 99 of these things not turning into to anything real. And then the one time, but you do still want people with that mentality because there will be a time or two out of a hundred where it does pay off massively. And you can't just always be like living in the the present line of business or the past line of business. So it's there. You're right. This is healthy tension. That's just necessary. And you can't find the line of the best fit line in advance. You have to go through the exercise of the back and forth. Yeah. It reminds me of, we've been talking about doing this for a while, uh, Alchemy of Finance by Soros and his we reflexivity idea. He talks about this a lot. I haven't read it yet. I know. Yeah. He talks about this a lot in there. talks about this a lot where he says that uh, you know, throughout history, it's this constant cycle between kind of like liberalism, conservatism, excess deficiency, all of these things. And so it might seem futile to try to like change anything or move anything because the pendulum is just going to swing back eventually. And his point is that it's actually, there's almost like a third axis where the pendulum is swinging, but it's moving forward through those swings. And so you do want this 
tension, these this degree of argumentation debate that we're talking about, because even though it might feel like gridlock and just back and forth most of the time, it is still moving things forward through the cycles. The the visual is not going in circles. It's like a corkscrew. Yeah, yeah. Dalio has that good graph of the like three three levels to the debt cycle, I believe it is. Yeah. Right? Or like the short term, long term, and then maybe it's just two. But you have the undulating graph on top of a larger kind of like undulating graph, which then has a line that's kind of up and to the right, even though on short term and even long term periods, it might feel like it's going down. Yeah. Yeah. Does Soros talk about one of the things I love in this book is socialism and history. Mm. The, the quote I'll pull is uh, the fear of capitalism has compelled socialism to widen freedom. And the fear of socialism has compelled capitalism to increase equality. So nobody wants revolution by the other. So they absorb yeah. properties of yeah, the Yeah, and other. so what's interesting is well, that also that exact chapter kind of predicted, I think, where we are right now. Which And maybe the trends were clear already at that time, which was they were kind of, I think at the end of that chapter, if I'm remembering correctly, was uh, they kind of made a statement of how they're kind of merging into one. Right or like they'll absorb properties of the other to kind of merge into one, and I think we're actually in a very yeah. almost merged place. Like we have a definitely not a capitalist system in the West, and definitely not a socialist system in the West. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. Like it depends what market you're talking about, yeah. but like education, healthcare, like uh, I feel like a few others. And if you just look at the share of government spending out of GDP, it's massive. It's like 25, 30%, right? It's like, it's, it's, we should fact check me, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty high when you add up state, local, federal, uh, military, and and federal healthcare spending too. So it's not 100%. You know, you're not a fully socialist country by any means, but there's, it's very significant, probably in a way that, you know, the founding fathers' time when they formed the country would probably say that's much more than they would have ever expected. So it's kind of interesting, this like trend to to merge the two. I was going to say there's this underlying idea that I think is really important to that, which they bring up in the biological lessons of history. And I think it's very clever because it like highlights how important this is, this conflict between freedom and equality. And that underlies a lot of the like capitalism mm. versus socialism debates too. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just read from the book. Only the man who is below average in economic ability desires equality. Those who are conscious of superior ability desire freedom. And in the end, superior ability has its way. Uh, Utopias of equality are biologically doomed. And the best that the amiable philosopher can hope for is an approximate equality of legal justice and educational opportunity. A society in which all potential abilities are allowed to develop and function will have a survival advantage in the competition of groups. Uh, And I think they, I don't have it for some reason, but they have this line that like freedom and equality are mortal enemies. Is that how they phrase it? It's, it's a really strong statement. For freedom and equality are sworn and everlasting enemies, and when one prevails, the other dies. Leave men free and their natural inequalities will multiply almost geometrically. To check the growth of inequality, liberty must be sacrificed. It's very counterintuitive, but once you kind of grok it, you're like, oh, actually, yeah, there is 
no way to eliminate this trade-off or no obvious way to eliminate this trade-off. And I think in, in the lexicon of today, we would probably say equity instead of equality because yeah, I feel like that's- equality of outcome. Equality of outcome. Yeah, yeah. Equality of yeah. outcome is what they're yeah. talking about specifically here. Because yeah. I think we use the term equality more now to mean equality of opportunity. Yep. And then we have this other term now, equity, yep. meaning like trying to force equality of outcome. And yeah, they're basically saying the only way you get equity- is by severely restricting everybody's freedom. Yeah. 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 They're not saying equality of opportunity restricts freedom. Right. Yeah. They're actually saying equality of opportunity yeah. is good. That's what you want to aim for. That yeah. that creates the the best possible outcome, which is yeah. Not yeah perfect, but you want to have the dynamic possible. Uh, society. I forget where it was in Europe that Taleb uses the example of where it's like the same families have been rich for Italy. Yeah. Italy for like yeah. hundreds of years, whereas in the U.S., yeah, it's like you might be in the top 5% earner, but there's no guarantee your children will be. And you might be a bottom 10, 15% earner and you could, you know, your children could be in the top 5%. So it's like, and and I think that's becoming less true, unfortunately, over time in the US, at least in recent memory. But I think it's it's still much more dynamic than a lot of other parts of the world. Yeah, I think it's getting more true. I th- yeah, I think it's getting more true. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I do feel like there's a lot more used to entrenchment. Have, like the banking and railroad the, and Well, for starters, like, you didn't have like families. full civil rights till like 40, 50 years ago, right? So the time horizon's already yeah. very constrained. But when I imagine like the permanence of the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers, they like, weren't that permanent. I'd rather though. live I mean, in the, the Vanderbilts and, lost all their money within like three generations. Like four generations. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah, but the amount of money. <laughs> but are, are there That's any recent driving families? a Honda Accord in 1995? I mean, the Waltons are the only ones I can think of right. who have done anything close to that in recent yeah. history. Yeah. No, I was going like, to say those. Yeah. Like, it's, it's you don't have even like, that's not that old. There's no Gates dynasty. Yeah. You know, there's no. I'm trying to think. Of, there's there's no Buffett dynasty. There's no like the, the they're super donating rich their today, wealth they don't have, too, which is the other the other factor. Yeah. So that's not a government avoiding. But that's not like a yeah. government dynamic. Then that's like a choice thing. Well, it's kind of a government dynamic because of yeah, the estate that's true. tax. It makes sense for them to donate instead of let it go to. Their yeah, kids. they'd rather choose where it goes. Was that Carnegie? Yeah, Corp? they'd rather choose where it goes. Oh yeah, the the yeah. gospel of wealth. Such a great <laughs> essay. Where he's basically like the government is is completely inept at spending money, so you need to spend <laughs> all of yours before you die. But- <laughs> Build by the way i was stuff. wrong on the government spending point so for uh, it was actually much higher than i thought like in 2022 mm-hmm. it was 37 percent of gdp was government spending uh 2021 wow. it was 43 wow. percent, but that's one of the all-time high years uh to be fair and then yeah. 2020 it was the all-time high ever which was about 48 percent of gdp in 2020 which makes wow. sense I think it's 2020, 2021, you had like economic activity contract for sure, and for spending sure. increase. But so, over the last yeah. decade, it's it's always been above 34%. That's the the lowest it's been is 34% yeah. uh, since 2010, wow. which is massive. That means like one out of every $3 in the US is a government dollar. That's pretty high. In 90 days, everything changes. <laughs> Care to explain? <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of our episode. Nah, the we'll lessons of history. Part yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will and Ariel Durant didn't know Bology was coming. <laughs> this is a quote I love. All economic history is the slow heartbeat of the social organism. Mm. Where you have like 
we conclude that concentration of wealth is natural and inevitable and is periodically alleviated by violent or peaceable partial redistribution. That's the heartbeat. Such a beautiful metaphor. Like you have the pendulum, but everyone says pendulum. There's cycles, everyone says cycles, but the slow heartbeat is also just puts it like right in the middle. It's like, yeah, no getting around it. <laughs> what else did that do you guys? What else did we like? Talked about, oh, okay. So th- there's one thing I highlighted in the religion section, which I thought was particularly interesting. It's something we've talked about before. And here's the quotation that I saved. There is no significant example in history before our time of a society successfully maintaining moral life without the aid of religion. France, the United States, and some other nations have divorced their governments from all churches, but they have had the help of religion in keeping social order. I feel like we're very actively living through this experiment right now because, I mean, everybody that I know is pretty secular. I have a few friends who go to church or who practice religion in some active way, but it's definitely not the majority. I think the majority in the US is still church going, but mm-hmm. it's, it might, that might not even be true, actually, if we talk about like weekly church going. Uh, but in, in general, it's probably the most secular time in history that we know of. And I feel like the jury is still out on whether that's working or not. And it does feel like we're seeing a sort of scrambling for new religions. And we've, we've talked about this before. You can interpret a lot of online, you know, whatever social behavior idea viruses as these kind of replacements for religion, as well as these physical quasi-religious gatherings like CrossFit uh, as replacements for what the church used to provide. Yeah. Or even some of like the diet stuff, like uh, vegans or carnivores, you know, take it to religious levels. Um, yeah. It's like it. everyone believes in something. It's just whether it's a formal religion or not. Yeah. And I, I wonder if we're going to have a resurgence of types of formal religion, or are we just yeah. going to use meme religion from now on and that's going to be how we identify our in-groups going forward what makes the unbundling this is uh brenner spear had this great tweet which was like the unbundling of organized religion it's like the yoga studio is the church and meditation is prayer and he kind of goes down the list of like everything that's been replaced the thing that you miss with the unbundling is that each of those axes is now its own community instead of one community that covers all of those axes and is that good enough, right? If it is, you, have, you sort of have a fractured community of your vegan friends and you do stuff with them, but then mm-hmm. you have your CrossFit pals and like you're across a bunch of these as opposed to like you go to church and everyone like, you know, aligns across the board on all of those things. They all get bundled. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's quite a bit worse having it unbundled because when it's unbundled, you have to look for a new group for each additional thing. Whereas yeah. when it's bundled, you have the built-in assumption of alignment on other axes as well. And I, you know, one thing that I think about a lot is like, why aren't people having kids and getting married earlier? Mm. Right. And a lot of it, I think, does come back to this lack of peer support or like social support. 
and you're, you're not going to ask somebody from CrossFit <laughs> to like watch your kids, <laughs> most yeah. likely, right? Most likely, unless you know, maybe if you're super into it, right? And you can't like bring your kids to your CrossFit class. Uh, but the churches have daycares, right? And you, you can bring your kids. And there's going to be a lot of people who are 5, 10, 15 years older than you at church who also have families and who you can like get advice from or who you can do game nights and stuff with, right? But if you're somebody who does a lot of CrossFit or, you know, pickleball or whatever, and you have those friend groups, and then you have a kid, most of those people might not, you know, share that with you. So now you have to go make new parent friends, or you have to find some other source of community where you get your like parent community from then if you don't have family around. And so it, it gets really easy to delay it. Because you don't have this like highly integrated social structure uh, that you're a part of. Um, the, I think you worded it like the very gentle way, which is like, oh, you can't make positive assumptions about the other axes of like, I don't know, belief or how you live your life. But then the, the inverse of that is you may end up in an area where you very strongly disagree. Like you could have very strong beliefs about the ethics of eating meat and you're doing CrossFit and you know, the other guy is a carnivore. So you actually have like very serious misalignment and you can't make any assumptions because you only have alignment on one vector out of like an infinite number. Uh, Whereas if the belief is, go ahead. I I was going to say they're, they're much shallower relationships too. Yeah. Right. Like um, you guys, I know have had this experience too. Like when you hang out with your college friends or people that you lived with in college and there's this kind of like special depth to it of, you know, we you just like understand each other on a deeper yeah. level because you have that shared history. Or you know, I, I went to this, I went to a boarding school, and when I meet people who also went to almost any boarding school, but especially the same one, there's that immediate like shared history that we can align on, and we know we're going to have some certain things in common. And I suspect that's the same for anybody who's a member of a like a relatively active member of a formal religion, where you know if a Mormon walks into temple in Austin, like they know that the other people there, they're already going to have this like starting off depth with. If I walk into a CrossFit gym, I'm not going to assume that I'm like broadly aligned on my life with everybody else who's working out with me, right? It's just a much shallower like starting point for the people that you meet there. I think, I mean, CrossFit, we're probably straw manning the secular argument a little bit with that example. But I wonder like the strongest counter example would probably be something around like, like, I mean, the strongest by far, I think, would either be an environmental uh, group or like human rights mm. campaign where there you sort of have like the moral grounds that you agree on and you can intuit, you can like ex- extract from there and how they yeah, apply or, elsewhere. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Are there highly yeah. active social groups based on shared Well, morality? I think there's proxies yeah, for that. that. That are developing, which is, you know, probably only natural, the Durants would say, you know, just the, the other swing of the pendulum. But there's there's like things that um, you see like podcasts, for example, doing like in-person meetups. And those podcasts, it's like, well, if somebody listens to this podcast, they probably are. Uh, and I forget what his I think it's called No Agenda. Mm-hmm. But like, I think Adam Curry's podcast is called No Agenda. I'm not 100% sure. So it could be using the wrong name. They do meetups and uh, actually a mutual friend of ours, Nat, uh, has gone to one that was in his area. And he was like, I expected there to be like four people there. There were like a hundred people there. And it was just Mm -hmm. like 
you know, if you listen to this podcast, you probably agree on a few other major topics and viewpoints. And so the podcast is not really about the podcast. It's like a proxy for like other people who also believe the same thing. And I think some brands are kind of leaning into that too, from like a more political sense. Like you've seen, and I'm not coming up with any great examples off the top of my head. I'm thinking Chick-fil-A, but I don't actually think this is true. But like brands kind of aligning, like kind of conservative or like Black Rifle Coffee, I think is one, right? That's like... Yeah, yeah, that would be a good. It's one. like okay, yeah, you drink yeah. this coffee, you're probably I was gonna not say, oh, a Bernie Sanders voter or something. You know, like there's probably yeah. some proc. It's like the brand is not really about like they're buying the coffee, but they're really buying the philosophy or like the the political viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say like seven years, seven eight years ago when he was much smaller. Uh, like Tim Ferriss's blog and podcast, and especially Four Hour Work Week, I think had this effect, where you know now he's much more of a household name because the podcast is huge, which is like awesome, right? Like it's really really cool. But when he was lesser known, and you didn't, it wasn't like everybody had heard of him. If you found somebody else who had read Four Hour Work Week and had kind of like a lifestyle business thing going and was maybe living in. Uh, Thailand or something, you kind of knew that you had a lot of the same values and interests and stuff. And so you could connect on a lot of things, right? Like to your point, Neil, there is this interesting, like ideal size of a brand or influencer where if somebody's on that train early, they're probably very aligned with the other people who are on it. But then as it gets bigger and more popular and more diffuse, it becomes less effective. And that, that's probably actually true for religions too, right? Like if you're, a Protestant walking into a random church, that's going to be very different from being like one of the only Sikhs walking into uh Gurdwara. Sikhs call it. Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Like, cause there it's, it's a smaller community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. That's definitely true about a lot of things like bands as well. I feel like when people are like the early fans of a, a band or like a rapper or something, it's like, it, they love it when they find somebody else who's like that. But when everybody likes that artist, then it's not as interesting. It's actually annoying to the early people. I, yeah. I wonder if that's why we like to pretend that we don't like popular <laughs> things because it makes us seem shallow or less like it tells you less about us. If we like a popular thing, whereas if you like an obscure thing, it provides a lot of information. Right. Yeah. Although Although the counterpoint degree of although the counterpoint, I, I guess, would be from the music world would be like the people who are super passionate about like Taylor Swift or Beyonce and like very vocal about it. It's like those are very popular yeah. artists, but they're still That's a strong Yeah. Too. <laughs> and actually that's also potentially a proxy for well, religion in some ways as well. Yeah, and that I wonder if that's you know, there we were talking about this before with like lessons of history versus I don't know Colleen Hoover, right? And there's this like something could be really popular and objectively high quality, but it can also be really popular and just kind of like popcorn fun, and it's popular because a bunch of you can like talk about it together. And like Taylor Swift and Beyonce are both objectively incredible artists, so they kind of they're they're in the like lessons of history camp, right? And, but there's probably other like super popular artists who maybe don't have that same quality level 
And so they can't command the same obsessive fan base camaraderie because they don't have that additional element of like really high quality. It's more like popcorn art. I don't know if that is the difference, but it, it could make sense as part of it, which would actually also explain the intensity with smaller artists too, who might be really high quality, but might not have the pop appeal. Right. And then those people get annoyed because in order to have the pop appeal, they end up diluting some of the quality that originally drew them in. Yeah. Or doing things that are, I, don't know, I, yeah. I feel like there's something here. I feel like yeah. we're, well, the thing I was we're getting close to an here. interesting idea. The, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one one extension of this is in areas where you haven't had like organized religion, you'll often have idol worship. Mm. Right. Good Which point. I think people kind of dismiss as like not religion, but it is a form of religion. Yeah. And we just have different idols now. Cause everything we've discussed up to this point as religion or religious is like some, uh, some call like coalescing around an idea. But I think the, the idol piece is valid. Like, yeah. Whole hordes of people fall into that. You have the Joe yep. Rogan camp. Well, I, okay. So I was actually just about to announce this or not announce this. I was about to I make this comparison. This. Like, you going on Rogan? What? <laughs> announce this. Yeah. <laughs> like my Rogan <laughs> episode's coming uh, out today. <laughs> Rogan's yeah. joining uh, the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Made you think. <laughs> um, no, I was going to say, what if influencers are like the new version of kind of a Greco-Roman pantheon style mm. worship, right? Where you have these like quasi superhuman figures, but who are still flawed and human-esque. And you're telling stories about their adventures and how they're influencing the world around you. And uh, it's it's kind of like this substitute for, yeah. you know, Abrahamic religion or like that kind of tradition where now to a deal's point about idols, like the idols are, kind of like influencers again. I don't know. I just read American mm-hmm. gods. So that might be influencing <laughs> me here. But <laughs> Is that a good another inter- Yes. Yeah. I read it a few months ago as well. Yeah. Cool. There, there's one thing I didn't like about it, but I'll tell you if and when you read it. Okay. Because I okay. don't want to bias you. Totally. I think the other thing with the idols point is that uh, idol worship is very fractured. You'll have like an idol for your home, an idol for your tribe. Like mm. you don't, you don't need broad consensus in order for it to take off or, you know, to, to be believed in. I guess we have our own form of idol worship yeah. with books, right? I think, yeah. There are little totems that we have around the house as uh, statues to ideas that we value or stories, right? To some, to some degree. I don't think I would. It's a stretch. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Are there any books you feel very strongly about? I mean, I guess you could, I guess the analogy, uh, right? The analogy would be, is there, Fight Club? The, no, I guess the analogy would be, is there a book that you feel as strongly about as a like true believer, like Christian would feel about the Bible or a, a true believer Muslim would feel yeah, about the that's Quran? A good question. Probably not. I, I will say that we are mixing metaphors a little bit with this. It's as, not, I think an yes. idol is meant to be yes. personified. Like For a sure. Personified yeah. Thing? Yeah. It's a personified thing. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, I guess uh, I more mean totem, not idol, right? Artifact, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. One other thing on the religion note, uh, it just ties back into the pendulum. There's the obvious, like, religion comes, religion goes. But the other thing they define here that I liked, and I'll just read the quote. Um, so it's like, without religion, uh, class war and tensions grow. So, quote, uh, for since the natural inequality of men dooms many of us to poverty or defeat, some supernatural hope may be the sole alternative to despair. 
Heaven and Utopia are buckets in a well. When one goes down, the other goes up. When religion declines, communism grows. And the second example is between religion and scientific progress, where sometimes religion results in violence and science and progress, progress provide stability. But then when science and progress and technological progress result in violence, religion becomes the beacon of hope. Mm-hmm. So you have this like give and take between those as well, in addition to the ebb and flow of religious belief. I wonder what it would mean. You know, I, I know this isn't their, uh, what they were trying to do, but I, I, a part of me wishes they wrote a, a follow-up to Lessons of History that was kind of like fourth turning or what mm-hmm. Yuval Noah Harari did with uh, Homo Deus. Where it's like, okay, here's all of our books summarizing history. Now, here's some ideas about where the future could go. That would have been so interesting because I'd be really curious to hear from them, like, what would it mean if religion, if organized religion was actually declining for the first time in, you know, recorded human history? Like, if if that actually goes down and stays down, like, what does that mean? for society or where although they go. give you enough to extrapolate like they have i mean i i don't know about the yeah, they, they, religion they point i mean i think the religion point is a very interesting one but when they talk about birth rates yeah for example i think the analogy they draw is that um and i think we actually have a quotation here where groups with higher birth rates increase their population which increases their power groups with more power literacy money status have lower birth rates they shrink and power diminishes and repeat cycle like that's kind of, you know, you could extrapolate then from today, right? These uh, societies like ours that have low birth rates and maybe not ours is not even the best example, like some places in Europe and, you know, Japan and some other societies yeah. and you can kind of extrapolate out. You know, I don't know if those predictions are going to be accurate, but I think they, at least for some of the points in the book, they give you enough that you can just look at take their point, look at the current trend and be like, okay, that's probably the conclusion you would draw as the prediction at least. Yeah. Also, like it sounds like they, and obviously this is the only book I've read by them, but it sounds like they were kind of trying to create timeless uh, books, like books that weren't like, I don't know, uh, what's the right term for it, but current events focused. And I think a prediction book, unfortunately, is a by definition, going to be a current events type of book. I, I agree. It wouldn't yeah. have been on brand. It would have been. It would have been a cool blog. Post, it would have been interesting. If like blog yeah. posts existed at that time, <laughs> that they could do like or a podcast interview. Like if they go on a podcast, it's like all right, based on all the things you've written about, like what do you think is going to happen with X, and then see what they say. That would have been cool. Maybe we can upload all their work into <laughs> Chat GPT and just ask. Oh, <laughs> that'd be interesting. <laughs> There you can just about paste this whole ones. book into yeah. GPT-4. Is it takes up to, what, 25,000 words? This is probably 35,000 Oh, wow. Words. Okay, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. There are limits to what I'll, what I'll buy from ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> we're okay with the Permutation City epilogue, though. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that, that I'm cool that was- with. I, I had it write much of a Breaking Bad spinoff the other day. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was really good. It was a that was a fun use case. 
Rise of Gus Fring. Oh. He like works for the Pinochet regime. Uh, he's like this good guy who joins a dissident group as a spy and then gets won over by them. Wow. It was, yeah, it was very <laughs> <It's> good. <compelling. laughs> there was one other thing. Oh, so when it comes to, I think the other risky business with uh, predictions is there's always like one variable that changes. And one of the examples they give, they're like, yeah, we go between democracy and like monarchy or autocracy, like back and forth. But something changes each time. And like the example they give is you had ancient democracy, but it wasn't really like worthy of the name because you had slaves. You only had landowners who could vote. Like you didn't have like, not everybody uh, was able to be involved in the process. So even though you were swinging back and forth between what was ostensibly democracy and then monarchy, the corkscrew shape actually has meaning here is like the next iteration of democracy had more people involved. Hmm. Uh, so it's like, what's the variable that's going to flip on on the next prediction? That, and that's the kind of why I wouldn't want to feed this in the chat GPT. I would want to know the Durants being like, this is what we think. Should they be so, should they have the gall to make such a prediction? Yeah. Well, I do think that, you know, to, to the points we've said before about cyclicality, I think that is at the end of the day, a lot of what they would say. They would say these trends are going to continue. They're probably yeah. just going to be amplified by technology and population. Yeah. And to be fair, that is sort of what has happened since then, right? It's like it's mostly the same stuff. I guess the big difference is just the change in warfare from the potential scale of it so far, right? But I think they would have a uh, – actually, they have a whole section on war in history. And the mm. one thing they say kind of on this note is uh, – in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. So, uh, you know, it's war is Constant. pretty much like the standard. And they say a world order will not come, uh, will come not by a gentleman's agreement, but through so decisive a victory by one of the great powers that it will be able to dictate and enforce international law as Rome did from Augustus to Aurelius. Such interludes of widespread peace are unnatural and exceptional. They will soon be ended by changes in the distribution of military power. So they would definitely be in the boat of everybody who thinks like end of history, there can be no more large scale yeah. wars is just deluding themselves because it will happen eventually. And the only way it will stop is if one country wins so decisively that nobody else and can even that, compete with them. And I guess you could... I always had a bit of an issue with this stat and it's because it's you like tell history from a top down way, but you experience yeah. life bottom up and like top down. It's like, okay, of however many thousands of years, you've only had 200 years of peace, but bottom up, you're only living in one place and you're only affected yeah. by the conflicts in that region. And yeah. from that perspective, you're actually, I mean, there are exceptions to this, but I'd be curious to see what, what, the, what that looks like. What are the, if you're in this location, how much, how often were you in war? How often were you in peace? And from the perspective of the individual, because that's how life is. I guess what percentage like, of yeah. individuals experienced war at any given time also, because right now, yeah, that would yeah, be a good because way to I guess frame the stat it. Yeah. is saying any human anywhere experiencing war would count, would make the year count as a war year, not a peace year. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah. There's been war what? every year that, or almost every year that the three of us have been alive, but because it's of where we directly, are, we, yeah. we haven't yeah. been impacted by it. So like our experience, our bottom-up experience is very different than that of like yes. an Iraqi, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
it's almost a tricky stat. It's like when so like you see those stats that say there have been you know 200 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year, and you think like, oh my god, like 200 schools have been shot up. It's like eh, it's not what that stat means, right? Mm-hmm. It's like any any gun incident where three or more people are hit, right? And so a lot of it is like you know gang stuff and things like that. But the the way it's told it's makes gang. you think one thing, but yeah. the underlying data are very different. And so yeah, yeah. like maybe the world has always been at war, but for a, you know, take a 30 year old male anywhere in the world on any given year, what are the odds that he is currently enlisted in military service? Right. And yeah, that it can't be that high. I guess for all time, it's probably relatively high, but to even take the last hundred years, right. It's still going to be fairly low. There must be some back of the napkin way to approximate this. Yeah, I'm yeah, I bet. Precise, yeah, but yeah, I bet you could get an idea of it. Yeah. I do remember what's the article's name. I think I sent this to you guys. It was a year or two ago, but it was like the surprisingly good math behind doomsday prepping. I remember you sent that to me. Yeah, and yeah, it basically it looked at all Western countries, so like Europe, U.S., and. Canada and stuff. And it basically said that like, if you look at the history of violent revolutions, insurrections, things like that, you have something like a 1.3% chance of living through one every year. So if you live for 70 years, then you take like 1.3%, you know, to the, you don't, what do you do? 1.013 to the 70th power or something. And you have like a 80% chance of having some sort of violent insurrection in your home country in your lifetime. And so having a baseline level of preparedness to survive that event happening at some point in your life is very intelligent, right? Like the odds of it happening in any one year are very low, but the odds of it happening eventually are very high, Um, which is kind of like to their point, right? There's typically some kind of war going on, fourth turning, right? Something bad will happen over an 80-year time scale. Yeah, I don't know. It's not fun to think about, but... We have to do a revisit of the fourth turning episode at some point because we were well, we're going to do when his new book comes out yeah yeah the july yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yep uh man i can't be- really, i can't believe he's writing that <laughs> he must be really kicking himself on the timing oh, man. <laughs> the no the timing is going to be perfect the dollar will have hyperinflated we'll yeah, be yeah. <laughs> we'll be wiping our butts with benjamins you know it depends it's on be- when you put down the pen <laughs> <laughs> yeah He's just going to be sad that his advance is in, you know, that USD useless, uh, useless dollars. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, one other point in, oh, in no. this book that I thought was encouraging and interesting and kind of like flying car ish, which I liked, which is surprising given some of the other themes. But his counterpoint to Malthusian thinking around like the max population. Um, and so as, as a population grows, right. people find more ways to make food. And there's more food, so population grows and cycle repeats. Um, which, if you look at history, that's kind of been true. Like the world population, you know, anytime they call a cap on it or a max on it, like it just kind of keeps going, and people keep finding a way. Yeah, life finds a it's way. It's almost like Moore's law, but I wonder if, like, again, Moore's law. People always kind of predict the demise of Moore's law. Like, oh, we're reaching the end of it, and it just like kind of keeps going. I wonder if this is like the same kind of thing. Well, the the interesting thing with well, and I think it is very much the same in the sense that once Moore's law hit a plateau, we found a parallel right. way to continue right. it, right? 
because mm-hmm. Moore's law kind of ran out on CPUs and then we started doing like GPU stuff, right? And like that kind of restarted it. I think there were a couple other things along the way too, where they, they couldn't fit more onto a processor, but they figured out parallel processing and but they I'm figured out stuff out. Here. I've just so heard keep it explained ex- before. They figured yeah. stuff out to get around it. Exactly. <laughs> Same thing with human population. It was like, okay, agriculture was a big leap. And then eventually that started to peter out. But then we yep. figured out fertilizer and that kind of like restarted everything. And yeah, so when people are like, oh, no, like more humans are bad for the world. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, who do you think yeah. is going to fix the world? <laughs> no cap on human ingenuity. Exactly. That's how I've always felt about the climate change stuff. And, and they said it's this very in Malthusian. Flying Car too, yeah. where it's like, what when it actually gets bad enough, we will figure out a solution, right? Like when, that's when it gets bad enough. Maybe that's a little too aspirational. And you know it's getting but, bad enough when the politicians stop buying beach houses. Like... That's when, that's when you can take it seriously. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. I guess is that is that where we wrap up? Um, where we got? Yeah, Maybe. I think I so. Know. I think so. There's a quote wrap. we can end on, oh. which I really like. Oh man! Oh, look at that. Yeah. The wow, okay. Quote. The end quote. quote. Life has no inherent claim to eternity. We should not be greatly disturbed by the probability that our civilization will die like any other. As Frederick asked his retreating troops at Colin, would you live forever? Perhaps it is desirable that life should take fresh forms, that new civilizations and centers should have their turn. Yeah. Strong ending. Are we allowed to comment on that or do we have to be quiet now that that was the closing quote? <laughs> I thought we turned off the recording. No. Oh, no. <laughs> No, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say it it, uh, it just harkens back to what we talked about in Permutation City and Flying Car of like immortality is probably not desirable, right? The thousand year old Mitch McConnell (laughs) still (laughs) writing bills. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the world I want. It's like, and I think we talked about this in that episode, but it's like from an overall system standpoint, it's not desirable. It's like each individual, Mitch McConnell would love to be a thousand years old, I'm sure. But it's probably not good for human civilization. <laughs> I would like to have the option. Yeah, yeah, the option. Well, nice. I guess okay. So that's the question, maybe right? If we, maybe if we put but term that's limits. what happened in Permutation City, and it's it's interesting. It's like, yeah, you'd probably like to have the option individually, but then it's like, yeah. does that freeze the species in some way? Like, does our progress become much slower? Because there, I mean, there's that whole thing I think we talked about in a previous episode too about science advancing one funeral at a time, yeah. which is I think structure of scientific mm, yeah. revolutions uh, we had done and yeah, yeah, idea, yeah, and yeah. it's like it, it kind of resonates, right? That like you're, it's very hard to progress, yeah. and it's that people aren't really convinced of the new ideas. It's just the people holding the old ideas die out, and the ones who advance are yeah. already holding the new ideas. There's a actually there's a guy I talked yeah. to who is a uh, a Bitcoin maximalist. The episode isn't out yet on my new uh, on 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 outside the system as the new episode. It'll come out probably tomorrow. But he has a opposite argument of Bology. Like he his theory is like Bitcoin's not going to hit adoption till like I mean he's not trying to put a date on it, but he said like 2069 and later because of he has he basically wrote this long blog post called Three Generation Theory of Bitcoin using that exact idea, mm-hmm. right? It's like right now we're in the initial generation, mm-hmm. only crazy people, crazy people meaning like pioneer-ish types are using it, 
our kids' generation will grow up in a world where Bitcoin has always existed for them, but it might not be mass adopted. And then the generation after that, it's like, oh, this thing has a long history of being around and existing. And like, it's just another tool, another technology. Yeah. And so his point is like, it's not happening anytime soon. Like, you, you know, you're, you're kind of fooling yourself if you think it's going to happen. Um, and he obviously expanded on that a lot better than, than I did. But it goes back to this whole point of dying of like, if people don't die, which none of us individually want to, you know, can, can civilization advance, uh, you know, and I, I don't know, that's like a very interesting question. And like, we'll probably confront some version of that as a species. I would imagine like maybe the digital immortality thing comes first before like the hibernation idea in three body problem, which sneak, sneak peek yeah. at the next, at one of the next episodes. <laughs> well, hibernation I yes. think would be okay. You know, the, the, I guess this would be another discussion because hibernation, you're not actively yes, participating. You're frozen. You're not frozen. Yeah. Science or politics the whole time. Yeah. You take a break and then come back. Actually, I kind of want to read okay. about cryogenics before right. we, uh, do that episode because I wonder how that like how close are we to hibernation? I I don't think we well we're good at the putting people to sleep yeah. part. <laughs> but well, we don't even know. Up, that's hard. We don't even know if we're good at that. Wake because anybody we've yet up? To, that's that's true. I mean. We don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly. What I mean, but like, I wonder, yeah. like, it, like who's working on it? Like, has there been advancements in it? Like, I don't know. I, like, how many people are still freezing them? Like, rich people are still taking that route. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's such a tough gamble because if we were good at it, you would want to get frozen like now, like at our Oh, age. yeah, because you don't want to wake up as an 80-year-old. Yeah, you want to wake up as a... Th- yeah. No, you could you could totally <laughs> regenerate. If, if they have the technology to wake you back up, they have the technology to like regenerate your cells to a young, healthy age, I think. Yeah. I'm... It, <laughs> I, I hope so <laughs> i would just i would i would write i would write that on my popsicle i would say don't unfreeze me until you can regenerate me to 25 <laughs> maybe 30 I like yeah 30 better. yeah 30 is ideal i think <laughs> yeah 30 for men is yeah a pretty good age i think 30 yeah. to 35 cool so next episode is peloponnesian war i think or three body problem how are you doing on three body great i'm awesome. like plowing through it i'm nice. i'll probably be done yeah within the next few days it's amazing it's just one of the best things i've ever read i'm also i'm kind of shocked and appalled at how many people said the first of the three was like a drag you had to get through it because i think i read it in like a single yeah set, two i finished that maybe. one really quickly yeah, yeah. yeah. But everyone was warning me. They were like, don't give up in the first book. And I was like, who I think up? Yeah. I'll, I'll be curious how you feel about that after you've read all three. Okay. Because I think the reason people say that is that the action pace picks up as the mm. books go on. Yeah. So the first one really does feel like a, a like slow prologue to what comes in the next two. Yep. Once you have the context of all three. Yeah, which I, you don't I had have the same the experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had the same experience of reading the first one very quickly. Same. Yeah. Um, but then, after, yeah, after you get to the end, it's like, okay, I could see how people would say that about the first book. Yeah, but I'll, I'll let you guys know when I'm done. Yeah, I'm I'm almost done. Are with you the, done, Neil? The third. I'm like halfway through the third one right now. Yeah, nice. I mean, I'm I'll be done by the weekend. I'm sure by this weekend. Unfortunately, hell yeah, I like it so much. I'll throw out another uh, sci-fi wreck. This is not as like 
intellectually dense, just like fun action adventure sci-fi. Though maybe I already mentioned this, Leviathan mm-hmm. Wakes. Oh, it's uh the it's a TV series on Amazon now. Oh called yeah, the okay. You mentioned the Expanse last uh, last episode, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just finished it. It's really really fun. It's really good, and the it's a pretty interesting premise too. It's like definitely less science heavy than Three Body Problem, but it, it's it's a really wow. Interesting there's nine books idea for a yeah nine like wow. six hundred page books. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, I wonder because I'm actually enjoying the sciencey nature of Three Body Problem, and like I, I really enjoyed yeah. Permutation City too. But I know <laughs> there are things that went over my head in that book. Um, Three Body Problem, like I actually feel like I'm keeping up, and like there's fun stuff to like Google along the way, and you're like curious about different things. So I, I just wish there were more Three It'd Body Problem, more like books hard SF series. Books. Like I just wish it was. <laughs> I wish that was the nine book yeah. series. That'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there's a I'm sure there on is. this. Hold on. I was, Other hard SF I was actually worried uh, when I started Three Body Problem. Um, Adil, I don't know if you had this reaction, but I thought maybe I would get confused with like some of the characters because there's like, you know, a lot of names that we're not familiar mm. with. And then, yeah, it, like yep. that's just something I initially was like, oh, this might be hard. Because I don't know about your version. My version has a page before the book actually starts which lists out all the characters. And I was like, man, this is going to be hard. Like I might need to take notes. No, no issues whatsoever. It's like pretty distinct characters and they make an impression. So you don't end up confusing them. Yeah. The characters are great. The, the names was what I was worried about. Names are and hard. I actually, yeah. but uh, cause we're also doing like the China study group on the side. So I've been like just getting more familiar with uh, Chinese names. And well, and we went to school with a yeah. lot of like, Asian yeah. Chinese people too. So I feel like we are more exposed yeah, to it. That's then. a good point. Yeah. Yeah. A little yep. bit easier, but that, I could definitely see how that would be hard for somebody who like had no familiarity with Chinese names at all. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to, I haven't Googled cool. anything about the book cause I don't want any spoilers till I'm done, but I'm curious about the author a little bit too, like, which I, I'll search before mm. we do our episode, but just, I'm curious about like what the background is and, just how, yeah, the history of the book. Yeah. Oh, um, there's. Have you guys read Snow Crash? Uh, that's another one I've been. It's, it's been on my list. Same. Same. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one's pretty good. Uh, but Neil Stevenson apparently has another book called Seven oh. Eves. Seven Eves. I'm not sure how to pronounce it exactly that is very highly recommended as similar to three body problem. I'll read the, I'll read the description. A catastrophic event renders the earth, a ticking time bomb in a feverish race against the inevitable nations around the globe band together to devise an ambitious plan to ensure the survival of humanity far beyond our atmosphere in outer space. But the complexities and unpredictability of human nature coupled with unforeseen challenges and dangers threaten the intrepid pioneers until only a handful of survivors remain. 5,000 years later, their progeny, seven distinct races, now 3 billion strong, embark on yet another audacious journey into the unknown to an alien world utterly transformed by cataclysm and time, Earth. Yeah. Sounds interesting. It's cool. Snow Crash is pretty good. So yeah, we should definitely keep one. mixing in uh, science fiction because I'm having fun yeah. with it. Uh, and they bring up a lot of cool topics. I, I really like- was not as... 
Yeah, that's like, like the other thing yeah. is it's not just because not every fiction book I feel like would give us this, but like these types of fiction books because they're based in like it's like there is a sciency element to it. It brings up a lot of cool topics like Permutation City. Our discussion on it was awesome. I I, I had a lot of fun with that. Totally. And the yeah. Permutation City and Three Body Problem are almost written like thrillers. Yeah. yeah. Whereas like I'm reading uh, thrillers where you learn a bunch of science along the way. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. Yeah. What were you saying, Adil? You're reading so what? We should do that about crypto. I'm reading Foundation on the side, and I'm just not as into it. I, I mean, it's short. I'm like halfway through. I don't know. I it, couldn't get into it when I tried yeah. to read it. I haven't tried to read it. But man, Three Body, I was like heart pounding. Yeah. I'm like, let's go. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to like uh, do all the Three Body problem uh, points right now, but like one thing I'll definitely say about that yeah, book yeah, yeah. that is different than any sci not maybe not any sci-fi book, but it has elements of like economics and war and like sociology and just all these things which are like second order effects, I guess, of the basic premise mm-hmm. of the of the book, which is super cool. Ender's Game actually has some of that as well. Uh like the whole Ender's Game series, mm-hmm. which is interesting, but um not to the level that Three Body Problem has. Like it actually, like, I, I really like Ender's Game. I like the series, Ender, Ender's Game series, but it, I think Three Body Problems is just better, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> one, one topic we should, like, put a pin in for the Three Body Problem episode that I thought about a little bit. I have a theory, but I feel like most of these uh, sci-fi books start with, like, one interesting idea. And then it spawns, then it kind of grows into this whole world to try to explore that idea, right? Permutation City was kind of this like copies on the computer and the TVC machine. And like, you know, what would that world look like? I'm curious what you guys think it is for free body Mm. problem. I I, I have an idea, but that'd be an interesting thing to talk about, right? Because a lot of these books do kind of start as one idea and then like grow into this crazy, interesting world. Yeah. It's like, what are the second and third order effects of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what other ideas kind of naturally stem from that? So, oh, the Peloponnesian War is going to be so hard after this. <laughs> Should we do that after Three Body Problem? Well, Peloponnesian War Three Body Problem next week. If, we if could. We if you guys are going to be done, we could just do Three Body Problem next week. Need I feel finish. like we're excited to talk about it. I, okay. I won't be done okay. by next week. We'll do Peloponnesian okay. War then. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I could be, but I don't want to like sit down and yes. do this like homework. Yeah. So let's yeah, do yeah, it yeah. after weeks. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Cool. Yep. Right. Good Keep time. leaving reviews. Right, guys. We got 50 on Spotify now. Yes. We have 100 on Apple. I think 101 yeah. on Apple is what I saw yesterday. So people cool. are leaving reviews. We love you guys. Keep doing it. Only if they're five stars, though. Yeah. Tell your friends. <laughs> Send this episode to one person who you think will like it. Um, follow us on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Facebook. Wherever. Just kidding. Facebook. <laughs> Only fans. <laughs> Made you think OnlyFans. I don't think people want to see that. Uh, no, crypto went back up, so yeah. I didn't have to resort to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> On that note. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>